Morning again, church. Uh, we come to our final sermon in our series, The Seven Letters to the Churches in Revelation. This is the seventh church. Uh, as we prepare to dive into our text this morning, I want to begin with a warning that uh, in many ways the church in Laodicea, the seventh church, out of all the letters, most mirrors the church in Durham, North Carolina. And as a result, the application is going to be most relevant for us indeed. And so I just ask that you prepare for that, prepare your hearts for that. I ask that you would now stand as we read God's Word. This is Revelation 3, verse 14 through 22. This is God's Word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit and will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, as your word says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word endures forever. We pray that your timeless word would speak to our hearts this morning, that as Justin prayed, we would encounter you, the living God, and we would be transformed. God, I ask that you would allow me to get out of your way so that you might do a work in each of us. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. For the art enthusiast amongst us, the name Jackson Pollock is most certainly a household name. Jackson Pollock is thought by many to be one of the greatest and most revolutionary artists of the 20th century. Without question, his unique abstract painting techniques have left an indelible mark on the world of art. Unfortunately, Pollock's story is not quite as beautiful as his art. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Pollock struggled with alcoholism and depression for most of his life. At the age of 44, motivated by these struggles, he decided to quit painting altogether. Uh, Pollock died less than a year later in an alcohol-induced car accident, some evidence supporting that the crash was on purpose. 
Now, such a story as this is surely sad in its own right, but this one has an even more painful element to it, doesn't it? We hear a story such as this, and it's hard not to think, what a waste. We see a man who had immeasurable God-given talent to create beauty. And yet we see that man simply lay down that talent and then ultimately lay down his own life at such a young age. It's horribly tragic. You see, there's something that is almost revolting about wasting gifts, isn't there? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm in no way arguing that Jackson Pollock chose to be an alcoholic or chose to struggle with depression. But nonetheless, it's human nature to be averse to gifts being wasted. The star athlete that simply quits because they get bored. The brilliant student who chooses not to apply themselves out of laziness. The master chef who eats at McDonald's every day because it's quick and easy. All of these examples crawl all over us, don't they? And they bother us because on some level, we all believe that we have a responsibility to utilize the gifts that we've been given. And not doing so is wrong. To be gifted and to not utilize those gifts is somewhat repulsive. Jesus saves the harshest rebuke of them all for this church, the church at Laodicea. Contrary to every other letter, there is not one commendation, not one good thing said about this church. It's all bad. So let's look now closely at the text to see what is it, what is it about this church that is so reprehensible. Look again at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. See, the problem with this church is that they are lukewarm, and their lukewarmness compels Jesus to want to throw them up. What does it mean to be lukewarm? For many years, this text has often been interpreted as referring to the zealousness of the heart of the Christian. That Jesus' rebuke is that the church is not on fire for him, to use the rhetoric of the day. However, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here, and there's a number of reasons why I think that interpretation is wrong. First of all, if we follow that line of thinking, then Jesus would be commending, verse 15, not just a hot heart, but also a cold heart towards him, over against a lukewarm, apathetic heart, which seems highly unlikely. But the second reason why I think this interpretation is wrong comes out of some recent historical discoveries. See, historians have recently discovered that the city of Laodicea was closely bordered by two other cities, Heropolis and Colossae. And what's interesting about these two cities is that one of the defining characteristics of Heropolis was its hot springs. It was known for its hot springs that produced hot water, and that hot water was good for medicinal purposes. On the other side, one of the defining characteristics of Colossae was its very cold, pure water, excellent for drinking. However, historians note, 
the city of Laodicea only had access to lukewarm water. Water which was not very palatable and at times even caused nausea. And so as you can see, these historical discoveries shed incredible light on our text. You see, the Laodiceans would have known, they would have been well aware, in order for water to be, keyword, useful, it needed to be either hot or cold. But if it was lukewarm, evidenced by their own experience, it was not helpful. Oftentimes, it was even detrimental to their health. So in light of this information, we can now begin to unpack what Jesus is getting at. You see, it's not that the Laodicean church had lost its passion for Jesus, but they'd become useless, unproductive, without purpose. And if we probe a little bit deeper in our text, we'll see on what basis Jesus is declaring that this church has become useless. You see, one of the helpful interpretive clues in all of these letters is that when Jesus reveals his name in the first few verses, he is telling us where he's going with the letter. So look again at verse 14. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Who does Jesus declare himself to be in this letter? The faithful and true witness. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the primary reasons why Jesus came. John 18 says, this is Jesus talking, for this purpose I, Jesus, was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, was uniquely gifted called, sent to do something. He was sent to bear witness to the truth. That's why he came. And as verse 14 states, he was most useful in accomplishing this task. This task. He was the faithful and true witness. But why does Jesus feel the need to remind this church of his own calling here at the onset of this letter? And the reason is because Jesus is reminding the church of how their gifting and calling was to mirror his. He's saying, you, the church, were created to be wildly useful, Jackson Pollock useful. You, like me, were created to be a faithful and true witness to the watching world of a God who is entering into our lives, of our Heavenly Father with his master plan to reconcile the world to himself. We, the church, are called to witness to that. And when we, the church, do nothing, when we are stagnant, when we fail to witness, it is such an immeasurable waste of gifting and opportunity that it makes Jesus want to throw up. It makes him want to vomit. Brothers and sisters, that's the essence of Jesus' harsh critique here. The church at Laodicea is wasting their gifting and calling to be a witness of our great God, and as a result, they are making Jesus sick. And so church, I think it's vital for us at the onset of this text to likewise point the finger at ourselves and begin to ask the hard question, are we, Christ Central Church, lukewarm? Have we abandoned our calling to be a witness and thereby become useless? Let me push a little bit harder. Are we content simply gathering and connecting and enjoying one another and yet our mouths and our lives have gone silent in front of this great audience that we call the city of Durham? 
Are we wasting our God-given calling to testify to the greatness of our God? Have we become useless to the point that we make Jesus want to vomit? That's the question that's before us this morning. It's a lengthy introduction, but I think it's necessary in order for us to get our hearts ready for what God has to say to us. Two points this morning. First, the root of lukewarmness, and then second, how do we combat lukewarmness? So let's dive in now. Immediately after Jesus convicts the church of being lukewarm, he begins to graciously unpack where this state of being has come from. Look again at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So church, what's, our, what's the root of lukewarmness? It's pride. It's pride. But it's not just any pride, it's pride that's rooted in prosperity. And here's where the parallels between our church and the church at Laodicea are going to be striking. You see, the city of Laodicea, they didn't have great water, but they had a lot of things going for them. Like many of the other cities that Jesus wrote to, Laodicea was a trade center, so they were reaping many benefits from this expanding Roman Empire and all the prosperity that it brought with it. Much like Durham, Laodicea was the place to be. It was a happening town. It was a place of luxury and wealth and comfort, extravagance. Life was good in Laodicea. But unfortunately, this good life came at a cost, came at a high cost. You see, this prosperity was producing in the whole city a prideful arrogance, a self-sufficiency. And unfortunately, the church was not immune to these things. We see this in verse 17 when they say, I need nothing. Church, we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the history of the world. We put Laodicea to shame. Studies show that even the poorest people in our country are wealthier than 70% of the rest of the world. We are rich. And if we think that this abundance that we live in and are surrounded by is not affecting us, we are naive. Our society boasts in being able to provide everything that we need. Just watch commercials on TV and you'll be convinced that everything you lack can be acquired in a blink of an eye with a push of a button. Amazon now offers same-day delivery for crying out loud. All we have to do is click and it's here. Why would we need God when we have Amazon, right? What, what purpose could God serve? I'm joking, but this is, this is serious. Jesus warned us about this in Matthew 19. He says, truly I say to you, that means listen, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We hear this quote, we think, oh, that's a nice metaphor, Jesus. But in, re in reality, it should scare the stew out of us. And what's so scary about it is because what Jesus is getting at here is that wealth has the power to, perver to pervert our whole view of self. That's why it's so dangerous. Because in reality, wealth can only provide for us material things, right? It, it cannot provide for us, it cannot meet our emotional and spiritual needs. 
But what Jesus is saying is that money is so seductive and powerful that over, over time it can convince you otherwise. And you begin to believe this lie, which is what happened in Laodicea. They, they had achieved so much prosperity, wealth, that they became convinced that they didn't need anything else. They no longer had needs at all. It, pro- it produced in them a profoundly wrong view of self. And it's that wrong view of self that Jesus grabs hold of. And he says, he says this, he says, you think you're rich, but you're wrong. The truth is, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Brothers and sisters, hear me now. At its essence, to be a Christian is to recognize one's need. One cannot be a Christian and need nothing. You cannot. So the question I have for you this morning is, what is your view of self? Do you see yourself as one who is rich and who needs nothing? Has your wealth blinded you to your neediness? Or do you rightly see yourself, as verse 17 says, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked? How can you know? How can you know for sure if your view of yourself is accurate? I want to give you guys a few good litmus tests. These are not rules. They're just questions that you can ask that may be helpful as you seek to probe your heart, to know where you're at. Brothers and sisters, what do you do when you experience prosperity in life? What happens when you experience great wealth? Do you feel like a million bucks and ride that ego boost for a while? Or are you aware of your true poverty that it is God alone that gives good gifts? What is your prayer life like around big decisions? Do you rely on yourself and your innate wisdom or are you aware of your wretchedness and are fearful that you might do something awful if you did not lean into God's wisdom and guidance? What's your heart like after you do something thoughtful for, something else, for someone else? Do you gloat in your own self-righteousness or do you find yourself stopping to give glory to God knowing that that love that is in you is a gift from Him? Or what about when you see others around you who are acting inappropriately, walking in sin? Do you turn your nose up and walk away? Or do you recognize that but for the grace of God, that would be you? Brothers and sisters, to be a Christian is to know in the deepest part of oneself that you need God. Not just when the stuff hits the fan, but as we just sang, every hour you need Him. Is that true of you? Church, let's relate this back to the greater problem that Jesus is wanting to address here, lukewarmness. Can you see why now Jesus approaches the problem of lukewarmness from this perspective? Can you see why pride and a wrong view of self is really the root of the problem? Jesus knows full well that we cannot be a faithful and true witness unless we have a deep understanding of our own brokenness and need for Christ. Because if not, then what are you witnessing to? If you don't understand your need, you are witnessing to the world inevitably of how great you are in and of yourself. That's what was going on in Laodicea. They were telling the world that we didn't need anything. We don't need Christ at all. That was their witness. And that's what made Jesus want to throw up. If 
we don't get back to a right view of self that we are, in fact, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We are guaranteed to remain lukewarm. And we will continue to be a church that Jesus wants to spit out of his mouth. Leads to our final point this morning. How do we combat lukewarmness? Because it's in all of us. It's in you, it's in me. Jesus has just finished pointing out that we are lukewarm because we are prideful, because we have this wrong view of self. So what do we do about that? Look again at verse 18 and and prepare to be amazed. I don't say that often. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and shame and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, we need a little bit of a historical context to understand what Jesus is saying. See, one of the things the historians have discovered about Laodicea is that they had a very well-known banking system. They had a famous textile industry that was known far and wide for its tunics that it created. They had a medical school that was known for ophthalmology. You see what Jesus is doing? He's going right at the false security that the Laodiceans were clinging to. Jesus is saying, you think you're good to go with your fancy bank? You're actually broke. You need to come get some real gold, the purest gold you ever did see. You think you guys make some pretty good clothes here in Laodicea? Looks like the emperor's new clothes to me. You're actually naked. But the good thing is that I have this beautiful white robe and it's just your size. You guys are pretty proud of this school of medicine, huh? Well, unfortunately, everybody is still blind. Guess what? I've got some some real medicine that actually works so that you can really see. We can't read this without being reminded of the words of Isaiah in chapter 55, words that Jesus would have most certainly been alluding to here. Jesus says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You see, the Laodiceans have given their whole lives to acquiring this great wealth, and Jesus is reminding them that everything he has to offer comes free of charge. It's there for the taking. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to take one thing away today, I pray that it would be this. I want you to see why and how Jesus deals with our lukewarmness. I want you to pay close attention. What's driving Jesus here in this rebuke? What is motivating him to come at this church? Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be be zealous and repent. He loves us. It's his love that causes him to be jealous for our hearts, and he knows that only in him will we be truly satisfied. Augustine says it this way, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Which leads us to verse 20, the most famous verse in this section of scripture and rightfully so. What does Jesus say? Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you guys have any idea what Jesus is saying here? Remember the context? The Laodiceans have been motivated by their economic prosperity and they've become prideful and useless. They have become utterly apathetic to Jesus and to his message 
and have become completely content in their comfortable, luxurious living. They have, pardon my French, if you will, they've given Jesus the middle finger. They have just cast him aside. So imagine how a typical king would handle this if his subjects were acting this way. He'd come to their house, and he'd come with an army, and he wouldn't knock. He would knock down the door. He would come inside, and he would say, bow down before me and respect my authority, because I'm your king. But that's not our king. That's not how he approaches us. He stands at the door, and he knocks. He calls to us, inviting to us to open the door and let him in. Not for the purpose of rebuke, but for the purpose of sharing a meal together. He wants to dine with us in spite of the fact that we have ignored him and cast him aside and looked elsewhere for our satisfaction. He's still standing there knocking, hoping that we will invite him in. Do you see the upside down nature of the gospel here? The big problem is lukewarmness, right? The the church has become useless in its witness the thing they were created to do. And yet instead of demanding that we be more useful, Jesus instead does something totally counterproductive. He invites us to dinner. He could have said, get out there. He could have barked at us and said, go get out there and tell people how great I am. That's why you're here, right? Instead, he comes to our house and he knocks on our door and he initiates relationship once again. Why? This is huge. Because ultimately, he's not after our allegiance. He's after our hearts. That's our king. And brothers and sisters, this method that Jesus is doing, we know it works. We experientially, experientially know that this works. When someone has your heart, there's, not, there's pretty much nothing that you would not do to love them, to show your love for them. I don't know if all of you are aware of this, but I'm not a very good dancer. I know it's shocking, but it's true. My wife loves to dance, uh, and her favorite kind of dancing as a true North Carolinian is the shag. Any shag lovers out here? Yeah? So, shortly after we got engaged, I decided I was going to get some dance lessons. Uh, I found a dance studio in Durham, and I would sneak off for dance practice without Stacy knowing. And I'm not going to tell you how much money and time I spent with this dance instructor trying to learn the shag. Let's just say a lot. And I'm not kidding when I say this. It was awful. It was awful. Uh, I, would, I would rather have a root canal. It was awkward. It's frustrating. It's humiliating. But what's amazing is every single week I was actually excited to go to dance class. You know Why? Because I was and I still am so wrapped up in this woman that the things that I did for her that might be construed as work, that might be considered burdensome, were a delight. I wanted to learn how to dance because I love my wife. Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. He's pleading for you to do relationship with him. And if you let him in, he will win your heart. He will win your heart. And the result of that is that you won't be lukewarm anymore. Our heart will be so gripped that we won't be able to stop testifying to the greatness of our God. I want to conclude the way that Jesus does. Uh, If his relentless pursuit of us has not been enough motivation already, he, he finishes by highlighting the reward. And so what's the reward? Verse 21. 
He says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus says, if you allow me to sit at your table, I will let you sit on my throne. If you let me in and do relationship with me, I will let you rule and reign with me in the new heavens and the new earth. But what's this throne all about? I think John Stott was right when he points out that the the throne exists here to reveal to us that when we pull back the curtain of this thing called life, we see at the center of the universe is a single magnificent throne, and seated on that throne is Jesus Christ. And we can be confident there is not a single thing in this whole world that ever happens that he does not rule and reign over. And so for the 200 or so of us here today clinging to hope that we can make a difference in our city, may this throne be a reminder that we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords and that we will win. He will conquer and he will reign forever and ever and ever. I want to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the twenty-four thrones... Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, the fourth like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, all full of eyes all around them and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I don't know about you, but I want to sit on that throne. I want to sit on that throne. Brothers and sisters, may, may Christ's relentless pursuit of you and this extravagant promise that one day we can join him on his throne, may that reshape your view of self and your view of him. May it purge out of you the lukewarmness that does not belong. And I hope and pray church, that others don't look back on our story as a church like they do for the end of Jackson Pollock's and say, what a waste. I hope and pray that we have the courage as a church to open the door to God's initiating love and allow him to enter in and drive out that lukewarmness into a profound witness of our great God. Because that's why we're here. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we confess we are lukewarm. We have laid aside our purpose to witness to your greatness. Father, I thank you that you don't come in and, and 
demand that we go witness, but instead you come and you knock on the door of our hearts and you ask us to dinner. You initiate relationship once again, knowing that relationship with you will truly satisfy and will remind us of why we're here. God, I pray that each person here would experience and hear that knocking and that they would open the door and let you in. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.